my name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I would love to meet you at some point. I'll be in the lobby after the service and we um, can talk. Um, today we're talking about how grace orients us towards people who are not like us. We're in this series where we're talking about grace. And today we want to talk about how does grace cause us to be oriented towards the people who are not like us? Or how does grace inform the posture that we should have to people who are not like us? Um, There's a growing tendency in our culture, and I think this is just in all of us, uh, to surround ourselves with people who are like us. Um, I read an article in the Atlantic this week that um, says that uh, the study found that more than half of workers would take a pay cut for a position that aligns with their personal values. So more than half of workers in this survey would take a pay cut if it meant they could join a team or join a company that more represented their values. Now, what's underneath that is just this idea that we want to be around people that are like us. There's something in us that just likes to be with people who are like us. Um, I uh, read this other article this week that was um, talking about uh, this study that Penn State University has done um, that is evaluating the migration that's happening in the United States right now as people move from uh, areas where they... um, If they're in a blue area, they're moving to a red area, or if they're in a red area, they're moving to a blue area. And this is happening um, in unprecedented ways in our country right now. And this one writer says this, the Penn State study suggests that people tend to want to live in ideological silos, surrounding themselves with others who share their political views. With these accelerating migration patterns, don't look for political divides to be bridged anytime soon. The fact is that there is something happening right now where people move states to be part of an area that believes more like them, that votes more like them, and people also move counties and neighborhoods. It's happening all over the country. And today, I'm not really making any kind of commentary on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just wanting to observe this is something happening. It's in us to want to be around people like us. And on social media, if you've, you know, read the least, you know, just a few articles about how social media works, you know that, that you're also more likely to see things that either you'll like or that will make you really angry. That's just how it works because that drives the views. And so it's, it's in us to want to be around people like us. And this isn't just in like serious ways like this. On Saturdays in the fall, in general, I don't want to hang out with Florida Gator fans. <laughs> I care nothing for them. I hope terrible things happen to them. Like all kinds of bad things go through my heart towards Florida fans in the fall. Um, it's just, there's something in us that can gravitate towards people who are like us. And the reason that we're talking about that is because the same thing can be true of Christians. That followers of Jesus can also share this tendency to be around people who are like us, to insulate ourselves from out 
there and be around people like us. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to be in community with one another. We've talked a lot about that over the last six months in this church. So churches, that is communities who follow Jesus, are supposed to be with one another. We're supposed to love one another. But these communities of Jesus followers called local churches are to be for the sake of the world. They are not isolated groups intended to insulate themselves from the outside world, but instead these communities of Jesus followers are actually to be for the sake of the world. And the reason why is grace. Last week, we talked about this idea that the grace of God saves us from our sins and trains us for good works. If you haven't heard that message, you can go watch it on our website. But I just want to show you something that happened in the text last week because it illustrates this point perfectly. Um, Titus chapter two, verse 11 is where we started last week. And then um, Titus chapter three uh, is kind of the, the summary of the application of what Paul's saying. And so these are on the screen for you to compare. Here's Paul's flow of thought in Titus that we looked at last week. For the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and the grace of God brings with it the offer of salvation for who? All people. And then how does Paul apply that to the church? He says, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here's what we should do. Slander no one. Avoid fighting. Be kind. Always showing gentleness to who? All people. Because the grace of God has appeared, all people are invited. All people are invited to come, repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus. And therefore... Christians are called to be gracious to all people. The word kind and gentle there, we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the sermon, but bottom line is they just mean gracious. Be people of grace. Because God's grace has appeared for all people, be gracious to all people. Here's how we're going to talk about that today. Here's the little idea that we're going to try to unpack. The message of grace generates a missionary heart. The message of grace generates a missionary heart. That is, grace trains us for love and good works. And our love and good works to others is simply an imitation of God's love and good works to us. As recipients of grace, we become dispensers of grace. Grace orients us to be for the good of the world, for the good of people, even people who are not like us, who don't believe like us, who don't live like us. Grace orients us to be gracious to all people. Grace, the message of grace generates a missionary heart. So today, here's what we're going to talk about. What does it look like to live with a missionary heart. If the message of grace generates a missionary heart, what does it look like to live with a missionary 
heart. Colossians chapter four is where we'll be today. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, Colossians chapter four. And if you need a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, unless you're on the front row. Um, and it's on page 1045. What we're going to see in this text is that there are two components of a missionary heart. Persistent prayer and a wise witness. Persistent prayer and a wise witness. And you're welcome for the alliteration. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Paul, in concluding this letter to the Colossians, is showing us that prayer and grace are, unique, are uniquely linked. Um, throughout the book of Colossians, he started by saying, because of what God has done for you, I'm giving thanks to him. And I'm continuing to ask that God would help you grow in love and good works. That's Colossians chapter one, verses one through 13. So Paul is recognizing that the growth that's taking place in this church, in the city of Colossae, is taking place because God has done something. And so he's already been praying for them. He's thanking, the, thanking God for what he's done and he's asking God to keep it going. We talked about last week how, how prayer is actually a dependence on grace. That the reason that you pray is the same reason that you need grace. It's that you can't do something for yourself. The reason that we pray is because we need God to do something for us. And that's what grace is. Grace is, I can't do these things that I need to do. I can't measure up to God's standard. I don't deserve to be with him. And yet in his grace, he comes towards us and he does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. That's grace. Prayer is uniquely linked with that idea because you don't pray if you can do everything. As long as you're responsible for all the outcomes of your life, prayer is actually a waste of time. But if you need God to do something that you can't do for yourself, then prayer is the only thing that makes sense. And so prayer and grace are uniquely linked. Dependence on God leads us to be persistent in prayer. But what Paul is about to show us is that not only is prayer uniquely linked to grace, it's also uniquely linked to mission. By mission, I mean what Christians are supposed to be doing in the world. So prayer is not only uniquely linked to grace, it's also uniquely linked to mission. Look at what he says in verse three. He says, at the same time, Pray also for us. So I've been praying for you. Pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains 
so that I may make it known as I should. Paul's prayer is that he wants the word, the mystery of Christ to spread. That's what he's hoping will happen. That's what he's asking them to pray for. What is the word? May God open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. What is that? Well, if you look at chapter one, he says in verse five, you have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So that's the word. We'll talk about that in a second. And then he says, the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? Chapter one, verse 27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious, glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the word, the mystery of Christ? The word that we use to describe it is the gospel, the good news. What is this message that he wants to spread throughout the world? What is the message? What is the news that he's, that he's hoping will spread? He tells us in chapter one that it's a message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus. It's a message of hope for the whole world. It promises glory, a future after death, a future after this world is the message that he wants to proclaim. There is a way to have hope that transcends what you see happening in this world. He wants to get that message out. And it's not just an optimism that's like, oh, well, believe the best and good things will happen. Put positive thoughts out into the universe and you'll get positive things in, in return. That's not the message. It's a message of hope, but it's also a message of truth. The word truth just means in chapter one, it corresponds to reality. It's real. Something actually happened. It's news that needs to spread. What happened? Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised from the dead. And the message of his life, death, and resurrection, not only is it real, but it also provides hope and it provides grace. It's a message of hope, truth, and grace. He says in verse six, that you would come to truly appreciate God's grace by hearing the message. The word grace just means something good that you don't deserve, something good that you couldn't earn. It's a generous gift of God, this message. Why do we need grace? As we've talked about in this series, because the bad news is that we do not deserve to escape God's judgment. Colossians chapter three, verse six is the backdrop of the passage we're looking at and that we'll return to in just a second. Colossians chapter three, verse six, but says, because of these, and he's just listed some evil sins. He says, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. 
The reason that we need grace is because on our own, God's wrath is coming to the disobedient and that's us. But the message of grace is that God's grace has come for the disobedient. That we deserve his wrath and yet we can receive his love. That's the good news. Colossians chapter two, verse 13 says, and you were dead in trespasses. He made you alive with him. That's Christ and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. What is the message that Paul wants to spread throughout the world? What is the message that he wants the Colossians to be praying will spread? It's a message of hope, truth, and grace about Jesus. It is apart from Jesus, you deserve God's wrath. But Jesus has come for you so that you can have the hope of glory Your future does not have to be wrath. Are you offended by the idea of God's wrath? That doesn't have to be your future because there's also hope in Christ. There's grace to be had and it's real. Jesus really lived and he really rose. That's the message that he wants to spread. So what does Paul do? He asks the Colossians to pray. He wants this message about Jesus to spread. So what does he do? He tells them to pray. And he's got two prayer requests. He wants an opportunity to share the gospel. That's the first request. And he wants courage and clarity to share the gospel. That's the second request. He says, verse three, pray that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. He wants the door to be opened. Wherever there's not an opportunity, he wants there to be an opportunity. And here's what's so cool and ironic to me about this. The little phrase, for which I am in chains. Paul is in prison with a prison door closed in his face. And what is he asking that the Colossians pray about? What door does he care to have opened? Why not pray that he would be released and that the door of his prison cell would be opened because the message of grace generates a missionary heart. And Paul begins to recognize while he's in prison that this imprisonment can actually become an open door for the gospel, that his imprisonment actually creates opportunities for the gospel to spread. This is exactly what he says in Philippians chapter one. He says, I'm in prison, but don't 
worry about it because my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. More and more people are coming to know about the hope, truth, and grace that's in Jesus Christ because I'm in prison. He says in Philippians 1, the whole imperial guard knows now that there's this crazy prisoner because of Jesus. The message of grace generates a missionary heart. He's not praying for himself in his release in prison. He's praying for the gospel to advance. And that's what he's asking the Colossians to pray for. He's asking for doors to be opened for them to preach the word. And he's asking for courage and clarity to speak when the opportunities arise. And that should give us comfort, I think. Do you know what that means? It means it's not new that you would feel bashful or embarrassed or awkward or afraid to share this message. And so what does he do? He asks for God's help. You know what we call that? Grace. Grace actually trains us for love and good works. And so he's asking for God's help. And what's amazing is because of Philippians chapter one, which you could go read this afternoon if you want, we know that God answered these prayers. A missionary heart begins with prayer. God's grace generates a missionary heart and a missionary heart begins with prayer. Let me ask you some questions. Do you pray for the spread of the gospel? Do you pray that doors would be opened? Do you pray that you would have courage and wisdom to share the gospel? Do you pray that for others? What if your community group just began praying that prayer together? Praying like this actually warms our hearts to the missionary task. Prayer like this is actually a means by which God's grace begins to train us. This is why as a church, we want to be persistent in prayer. We talk about that all the time. I hope that eventually you're sick of us, of hearing us use those words, because that means we're just starting to talk about it enough. We want to be persistent in prayer. This is why we have a moment of prayer in all of our gatherings. And here's Paul's down to earthness. In verse two, he says, stay alert in it. Why does he have to say that? Because we all know what it's like to be in prayer and not praying. We're thinking about Costco and, you know, our whatever else. Football, you know. I wonder what our fantasy team's doing. We're sitting there supposed to be praying. He says, stay alert in it. I was reading this Puritan writer this couple weeks ago. And the Puritan writer said, pray until you pray. And I love that because that's true. Like so often you're praying and you're not praying. So stay in there until you're actually praying, man. Pray until you pray. That's what he's saying. We want to be a church that does that. That's why we pray in our gatherings. That's why we've, we're starting this once a month prayer gathering. Start to whet our appetites for this. This is why in our staff meetings, the last 15 minutes, we end 
in these things called prayer pods where we get together and we just pray about stuff. This is why in our elder meetings, we spend the first section of the meeting just praying. This is why in a few weeks, we're going to have World Outreach Weekend where we're going to pray intentionally for our missions partners. So we want to be a community of people who prays. Why? Because we want to have a missionary heart. We want to be for the sake of the world. So we want to pray. God's grace has appeared offering salvation for all people. So we want to pray for all people. That's Paul's reasoning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So what do you pray? If you're supposed to be persistent in prayer, let's say that you're like, all right, I'm going to try. What should you pray? Jim Munson, he's one of our elders. I love that guy. And he's, his best advice is just keep it simple, man. Like we don't have some magic words. He just prays one word prayers, which I appreciate because it, I, I can stay alert for one word. <laughs> Blessing is a lot of times his prayer. Peace, that's his prayer. I like that. Um, but a way to grow in your prayer is one, to take the pressure off. There's not some magic words and you don't need to impress God with all of these words. Jesus actually said, when you're praying in public, don't babble on and on and on. God already knows what you want to say. So say it. And that's true. There's also obviously freedom. If you are a long-winded person, you don't need to feel guilty about pouring your heart out to God. That's also very appropriate. So the point is, just be yourself. You're talking to a person when you pray. Be yourself. But how do you learn what to actually say and what to pray for? And the most helpful thing for me has been learning to pray scripture. And someday I hope that we do a class on that. Um, but for now, it's very simple. You just pick a verse and you pray it. So Colossians 4, verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word. God, would you open doors for the word this week? Boom, you're done but then you could start praying that prayer for other people. Or Colossians chapter one. This was something I was praying earlier this week because I've been studying the book of Colossians in preparation for the sermon. Um, Colossians chapter one, verse six. This, the gospel has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. God, here's my prayer. God, would you please help the gospel continue to bear fruit all over the world? God, would the gospel bear fruit in my home? Would the gospel bear fruit on my street? Would the gospel bear fruit in our church? Would the gospel bear fruit in our community? Would Kids Fest be an opportunity for the gospel to bear fruit? It's just one little line that I would not have thought of if it wasn't for the scripture. And that's one of the ways that God teaches us to pray is we take what he has said, that's his word, and we say it back to him. Another thing you could do if you want to start warming your heart to the spread of the gospel, to the missionary task in the world, another thing you could do is just download um, a couple of apps that could be helpful. Um, there's an app called the Unreached of the Day. The Unreached of the Day. If you Google that in any kind of app store, you'll find it. Um, Basically, they just take uh, people groups from around the world and it's like a little almanac and it'll give you a few facts about that people group. And then it offers you some things that you could pray for, for that group of people around the world. Um, the other 
app that could be helpful is called IMBPRAY. IMBPRAY. That stands for International Mission Board Pray is the name of the app. And this is a, similar to the other app I just mentioned, but um, this one focuses on a different place in the world. And then um, it compiles prayer requests from real missionaries in those parts of the world. So this is just um, a little tool that you could use. You could also stop by, there's a little wall right out in the lobby. You've maybe noticed that there's this obstruction and make it, it makes the lobby feel small. But on that obstruction, there is uh, some information about our missionaries. You could pick up some of those cards and you could start praying that way as well. Um, those are just a few ideas of how you could start praying um, as part of the missionary task. So the message of grace generates a missionary heart and a missionary heart begins with prayer. That's the first component. Here's the second component of a missionary heart. A missionary heart leads to a wise witness, a wise witness. So it makes us persistent in prayer and it makes us have a wise witness. Look at verse five. Act wisely or literally walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Now, when he says the word outsiders, he's just referring to people who are not followers of Jesus, people who do not believe in the gospel. And by using the word outsider, he's not trying to be offensive. Like there are insiders and there are outsiders. And one of the reasons that that's not offensive, I think, is because most people who don't believe the gospel are happy to be considered an outsider. <laughs> they already feel like an outsider and they're happy to be an outsider and they don't really want to be an insider. And that's why they're an outsider. And so I don't think it's offensive. Uh, for that reason. But here's the other thing is nobody has to be an outsider, man. Everybody's invited. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There are no exceptions to that. No one is being discriminated against here. Everyone can come. Everyone is invited to receive the grace of God that appeared in Jesus. And that is actually radically inclusive when you start to think about the implications of that. So he's not being offensive by calling them outsiders. Instead, he's being loving to them. He wants outsiders to become insiders. And so he says, walk wisely act wisely, walk in wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom, simple definition I like is it's living with the future in mind. It's making decisions now in light of my preferred future, or it's living now in light of what my goal is for the future. And what's the goal for Paul? What should be the goal of a Christian? The goal is that people would be able to stand on the last day when Christ returns and that they would experience the glory that can be had on that day. That they would get to be caught up in the transformation of all things when Christ returns rather than taste 
the cup of God's wrath. They would get to drink from the cup of glory. That's the hope. That's the last day. That's the goal. So what does it mean to, to act wisely, to walk in wisdom? It means to live towards that end, to make decisions in light of what would help people stand before Christ someday. If we want outsiders to become insiders, and if we want insiders to be built up into the person of Christ, then we should walk wisely. We should live that way. So what does it look like to walk wisely? He doesn't unpack that a ton here. He does give us a qualifying statement in verse six that we'll look at in just a second. He tells us two things there. But there are two other things he says in other places that I want us to look at. To walk wisely towards outsiders, I think means four different things. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just four things for today. First, walking wisely means being good workers being good workers. If we want for people to embrace the message of Jesus, then it matters how we live. If we're going to be people who spread a message, that is who talk, then we better care about how we walk, to be cliche. So one of the ways that we should care about how we walk is in the work that we do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this, Seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly, walk wisely, in the presence of outsiders, and not be dependent on anyone. Being a wise witness means being a good worker. Pastor Crawford Lurett says, If you're a lousy worker, Take all the Christian stuff down from the cubicle. And that is great advice. It's foolish for a follower of Jesus to be loud about their faith and lousy in their work. If you're concerned that you're just not that talented of a worker, here's something that a pastor, an older, wiser pastor shared with me once that was helpful. Here are 10 things that require zero talent. Being on time, a work ethic, effort, energy, body language, passion, doing extra, being prepared, being coachable, a positive attitude. 10 things that require zero talent. If you're the office complainer or the office slacker, you are closing a door to the gospel. It matters how we walk. So what kind of worker are you? If you feel like a failure, the answer is not crucify yourself. The answer is trust in the one who was crucified for failures. 
and allow his grace to train you for love and good works. Walking wisely looks like being good workers. Second, it looks like being good neighbors. Being good neighbors. We're going to pick back up the verses that we looked at last week in Titus chapter 3. Paul writes this. Remind them, that's followers of Jesus, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. He says, part of what it means to posture yourself towards the world, part of how grace orients you to the world is you become generally speaking, known as being submissive and obedient to the government. Now, there are times, of course, where obeying God requires disobeying the government. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that throughout the Bible. But if your normal pattern is looking for exceptions to this principle, you're probably being driven by something other than God's word. In general, when the government thinks about Christians, they should trust our character. They find out you're a Christian, they're going to trust. They treat people kindly. They do the right thing. There's someone we can trust. Our consistency in keeping the law and doing good for others should marvel them. Citizens are blessed in this country with the right to vote. And we should vote according to what's right as God defines right. And we should vote according to our conscience. But we should also understand that Christian goodness in the public square is not just how you vote, but how you treat people who vote differently than you. Listen, God has not placed Christians on the earth to win elections. He has placed Christians on the earth to win people to the gospel. And this means that how you treat people, it matters. This means You can't take your cues. I can't take my cues for how I ought to think about people and treat people from either side of the political aisle in our country. Is graciousness, gentleness, slander of no one, are those qualities just bursting at the seams in our political climate? Do you know how rare those qualities are today? And do you know who is actually responsible on the earth for living like that? If you're here and you would consider yourself an outsider, how are we doing? I would love to hear your answer to that, honestly. Outside, after the service, I'd love to talk about that. 
our general posture is to be submissive and obedient. It's to be kind and gentle, Paul says. The words kind and gentle, one Greek scholar says, and it's kind of, they're two synonyms. He says, this is one of the truly great Greek words that is almost untranslatable, talking about the word kind. It's the word magnanimity, which I don't know what that means. Um, but it's a sweet reasonableness. It's a refusal to be petty. It's a generous spirit. Aristotle used this word and he contrasted it with what he called strict justice. For him, it meant a generous treatment of others, which while demanding equity does not insist on the letter of the law. It's willing to admit limitations. It's willing to make allowances so that justice doesn't injure. It is a quality that keeps one from insisting on his full rights where rigidity would be harsh. One commentator says it's that considerate courtesy and respect for the integrity of others, which prompts a person not to be forever standing on his rights. That's what Christians are to be known for. Graciousness. This posture of sweet reasonableness. Why are we to be that way? Why are we to be gracious to all people? Because God's grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, a wise, upright and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The other thing I think it means to be a good neighbor is to be hospitable. First Peter chapter four, I'm trying to show that this is the pattern across the New Testament. This isn't like an isolated verse somewhere. This is like the whole ethic of the New Testament. First, first Peter chapter four, this is Peter writing. He says, the end of all things is near. Some of you have been wanting me to talk about the end times. Here you go. All right. Here's Peter's application of the end times. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. What does that sound like? Well, that's almost, that's exactly what Paul said in Colossians chapter four. He says, above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a, mul a multitude of sins. Then he says, verse nine, be hospitable to one another without complaining. The word hospitable means love for strangers. This is who Christians are called to be. I'm rereading a book right now by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And if you've not, if you don't know Rosaria Butterfield's story, you should Google her. Um, if you've not read that book, I recommend it. But in the book, she's talking about the art of hospitality as Christians. And she had befriended this man across the street the rest of the neighborhood was very skeptical of him, but over the course of a couple of years, they become friends. And then one morning she gets a text from her neighbors that um, what's going on over at your house. And across the street from her, the DEA was there setting up shop and invading this man's home. And it turns out he had a meth lab in his house. So she writes, what does the conservative Bible-believing family who lives across the street do in a crisis of this magnitude? How should we think about this? How should we live? We could 
barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts, see 1 Corinthians 15:33. And like the good Pharisees that we are always poised to become, we could thank God that we are not like evil meth addicts. We could surround our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape, giving the message that we are better than this, that we make good choices, that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. What if the meth lab explodes and takes out my daughter's bedroom, the room closest to the lab? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this meth addict into our hearts and our home? But of course, this is not what Jesus calls us to do. As neighbors filed into our front yard, which had become front row seats for an unfolding drama of epic magnitude, I scrambled eggs, put on a big pot of coffee, set out Bibles and invited them in. Who else but Bible-believing Christians can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived circumstances look dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, not my neighbor's? no matter how big my neighbor's sin may appear. And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, and hopeless? That is who followers of Jesus are called to be. We are called to be people of grace because the grace of God has appeared for us. So that looks like being a good neighbor. It looks like speaking with grace, verse six. He says, let your speech always be gracious. Did you know that it's possible to disagree with someone without being disagreeable? Defending truth is never an excuse for being mean. This is the same thing that Peter taught the church. First Peter chapter three. He says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now that is countercultural. That is drawing a hard line in the sand. That is defending truth. But here's how that's supposed to be worked out. He says, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So there's the hard line. Yet, verse 16, do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is also what Paul taught the leaders in the church. He said to the elders, they need to be able to correct and rebuke with sound teaching. And he can also say about elders in the church that they're not to be quarrelsome and they shouldn't be bullies. In his mind, those things are not mutually exclusive. It's not, you're either a hard noser who stands up for truth or you're a pushover who compromises everything and waters everything down. In the Christian mind, there's a space where we should be able to stand for truth with grace. Jesus came full of grace and truth. 
John 1 says. And that is what we're called to do. Does that sound hard? That's why we pray. That's why we need God's grace. If you're active on social media, are your posts and replies calculated through this filter of grace? Are you walking wisely on the internet? Are you listening? Are the, are the primary things that you see and the primary people that you listen to, are they cultivating a love for people who are not like you? Or are they creating fear in you about what's going to happen in the world? It's worth asking, what's the fruit of how I feel after listening to this podcast or this news station? Does that mean that if it doesn't always conjure up love in your heart and that it only ever conjures up anger, does that mean you should never listen to that? Maybe. The other thing it means to walk wisely. It's being a good worker, being a good neighbor, speaking with grace, and finally, speaking with salt. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. The idea of being seasoned with salt is just making what you say taste good. It's being compelling and persuasive. The message being communicated doesn't change, but the approach changes. Uh, in our house, we make uh, popcorn lots of nights, like probably, I don't know, four out of seven nights a week, we're making popcorn on the stove. Um, and I love popcorn, um, assuming that it has enough salt on it. One of the grossest things in the world to me is a bunch of popcorn with no salt. And so the popcorn needs to be seasoned with salt for it to taste good. But I want significantly more salt than Courtney wants. And so the amount of salt that you put, the way that you prepare the popcorn depends on who's going to eat the popcorn. Paul says it's the same in how you speak. It should taste good. And the way that you know if it'll taste good is by knowing the other person. The questions people ask, the frustrations people have, the fears people have, they'll be different depending on each person. And so it takes great wisdom and discernment to know how you ought to answer each person. And where does wisdom and discernment come from? It comes from God in his grace. This is why we should pray. This is why Paul prays in Colossians 1. For this reason, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's why we pray so we can be these kinds of people. God's grace saves us from our sins and it trains us for righteousness. God's grace generates a missionary heart. 
A missionary heart looks like persistence in prayer and walking wisely. That's the message today. Can I share with you? I don't know how to do this. As a pastor, I don't know how to lead a church to be this kind of witness in the world. Um, That's one of the reasons that we're just praying. But I legitimately believe that God has called us to be here in the Pacific Northwest, not to see all things transformed for some kind of political cause, but to see people come to know Jesus. And for us to do that, it requires playing the long game. It requires us learning how to be evangelists with salt. It requires learning how to live with people who think differently than us, who believe differently than us, who live differently than us. It requires us learning how to walk with grace and wisdom and be persistent in prayer for opportunities and be persistent in prayer for wisdom to know how we ought to answer each one. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's a seed-like message. We're here to play the long game. My hope for us is that we would be a church with a missionary heart. And again, I don't exactly know how to do that. But I want, by God's grace, to try and figure it out. And I don't mean me figuring it out. I mean us as a community figuring out how to live and witness this way in our world. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Father, I praise you for your grace. Thank you for sending your grace in a person, your son. God, would you help us to remember our our need for you, our persistent need for you. God, would you help us to walk wisely, to speak with grace? Would we be good neighbors? Would we be gracious in our witness? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?